Okay, yeah, you know, you know these. This is, I'm, I'm just gave you two handouts. One is last week's, which I didn't have as a handout, but then mm -hmm. I sent it out. So uh, you really yes. got it by email anyway, yes. but here it is as a printout, which is the, Thanks. what I call the four row, right, the four row table um, in terms of Amalek. Oh. Hi, how are you? Okay. And the next one is today's handout, number 34, which is for Matirasurim, um, just because I think you'll find it helpful to locate at some points where we are on the table mm -hmm. yeah. as we're talking, even though we're not really going to go through all the levels on the table. <laughs> but, and you'll see that I actually made a, a line this time. I darkened a line horizontally oh. Oh, okay. um, just to help us call attention. As you'll see, between the levels below, which are the body and the nefesh, and the levels above, which are the head and the soul. And if you look all the way on the right side, where you see that those top two worlds are considered the realm of the supernatural, the mm -hmm. lamalam in hateva, the bottom two worlds are considered the realm of the teva, the natural. So, right, and as that corresponds to the Beis Hamikdash, the bottom two worlds correspond to the parts of the Beis Hamikdash where avoda is done outdoors, mm -hmm. meaning in this physical world, and the top two parts, which are the supernatural parts mm -hmm. of the avoda. Those are performed w indoors in the Beis Hamikdash, meaning within the spiritual space of the temple versus out in the rest of the world. Because mm -hmm. as you head in, you head more toward a spiritual right. world. Okay, so that it will be helpful as we go along. Now, my plan this year, if I spoke really, really fast, we could squeeze into 45 minutes, but it would be like very Don't intense. Speak really fast. <laughs> but I have a tendency to talk fast. But. What I would prefer to do, and I actually sent a little email out this morning to let people know, is I would prefer to take this not at such high speed and to use it over two sessions, maybe three. I'll see if I can pull off a third one before Pesach. Kind of depends how my cleaning is going. Yeah, sure. It's a good idea. Um, to also use this as a springboard for talking about Pesach. Oh. So we're actually, which makes sense if you think about the bracha we're up to now, which is Matir Asurim, Hashem frees the imprisoned. Oh, yeah, Egypt true. was the ultimate prison. It's the prototype of a prison. It was almost impossible. To, it was impossible pretty much to get out. And our redemption of Hashem taking us out. So <coughs> it is, excuse me, it is a very suitable form. And you'll see that the approach that we're going to take with Matir Asurim also lends itself um, not only naturally from our point of view, but actually in terms of the consortium. <laughs> That's better. There we go. In terms of the Mephorshim as well, to a deeper understanding of the process. Or not the process, but how we, how, what we take from the process. All right, so the bracha we're going to start working with here is Baruch Atoah Hashem. You are the source of all bracha the loving and eternal creator of the universe, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, our, our Lord and Master and King of the universe, Matir Asurim. So the word, basically translated as who frees the imprisoned. But let's look at the words more closely. Matir. Lahatir is to release to free, to unbind, 
places you would be familiar with that is mutar. <coughs> is something allowed? Mm -hmm. Are you allowed to do this on Shabbos or not? Is it mutar or asur? Uh -huh. You see those two words, matir asurim. Mutar means it's free, it's not tied down, it's unbound, unrestricted. Asur means it's tied, it's restricted. Okay, so mutar and asur. Matir asurim is familiar. <laughs> I say, you don't want to quote anything in the name of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was known for perverting this blessing and using it as an excuse to do more or less anything you want. <laughs> but that, that was a perversion of, of the words and not what they mean at all. What did you ask? It's like permitted. <sighs> yeah, lahatir is to permit, right? Somebody gets a heter, means they spoke to a rav who said that in light of a different halacha, this thing which is normally restricted or, or not permitted is now permitted, mm -hmm. right? It, it was loosened. It was untied, right? Now, that's only going to be because it's in light of some other halacha that perhaps, you know, sometimes you have. There, there's a reason we need poskim. <laughs> there's a reason you need a rav with smicha who has the kind of smicha appropriate to poskim, whatever it is you're asking him. And the reason is because very, very rarely do we, you know, maybe I shouldn't say rarely. Some of the time we have questions and just a question of like, I'm going to eat this grape and it's Shabbos. What's the best way to take the grape off the stem? Mm -hmm. Like, is there an issue of taking the good grapes from the bad grapes and the bad grapes from the good, you know, like there's something like that and it's pretty clear cut. There is a halacha of borer and somebody who knows the halachas of borer can tell you, yeah, this is yes or no. And by the way, you could also learn those halachas yourself and probably are obligated to learn these halachas ourselves because women have a halacha of learning Torah to the extent that we need to know how to live mm -hmm. and how to understand our davening, okay, which as far as I can tell is enough to keep me occupied, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but then sometimes you have a Shiloh where it's, there's two competing halachas. So you have one halacha that says, uh, don't turn a light on, don't use a telephone on Shabbos. And you have another halacha that says that if a person is very sick, you have to turn on the light to be able to help them, and you have to, you have to call for help and get an ambulance. So now you have two competing halachic demands. One is not to activate, not to complete an electrical circuit on Shabbos. And you have another halachic demand, which is that you have to do almost anything to protect somebody's life no matter how, not, not no matter how minimal the risk, but if there's any potential concept of a risk to their life, so you have to do what you can. So now, the truth is, if you go and start asking a halachic shayla on this, probably you're a bit of a fool. Maybe you should have asked before Shabbos, before you had a crisis, but in the crisis, you have to be the rabbi. If you have a suffix, if you have a doubt, maybe there's a pikuach nefesh, the halacha is pikuach nefesh doche Shabbos. I don't want anyone to walk away from me using this example and think, okay, now I have to go first run to my rabbi. Now you're risking somebody's life by leaving, <laughs> leaving them there while you go run to the rabbi. That's a, that's a very, very big mistake. So maybe that was a bad example for me to take. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Um, as a halacha, you have to honor your parents. And what if in honoring your parents, that conflicts? You know, your parents are divorced. So you're going to honor this parent that's going to come at the expense of that parent. Now what? Okay? Parents are divorced, they both want you to have your Seder with them. So, so you have a conflict, right? So you have a you have, before you even get to the emotional question, you have a halacha question. Mm -hmm. Right? You also have an emotional question that might tie into the halacha, because sometimes the halacha is also has to do with how somebody's going to feel about it, including COVID. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So that, you need a posig. You need somebody who understands how you weight the different halachos in the different situations when the two halachos are not just obviously reconcilable. Okay? That's, okay. So a person might go and get a heter from a rav. It doesn't mean the rav is saying, fine, don't worry about this halacha. Never mind. Right? That's not what a heter is. A heter is, is there a reasoning within the halacha that says that given this other extenuating circumstance that that would outweigh your obligation in another area? That's what it means to get a real heter. Okay? Anybody who's just like, you know, what did they used to call that? Selling indulgences? That was like a Catholic thing. Right? You paid money and you got a, a get out of jail free card, basically. <laughs> like that's not, that's not what a heter is. Okay? Matir. That was a little bit of a discursion. Lahatir is to release. You are lehatir aneder, matir neder, hataras nedarim, before Rosh Hashanah. Hataras nedarim is a process of the person has made a vow, getting the vow released so that they shouldn't accidentally violate it. Now, just as a matter of interest, that sort of blanket hataras nedarim before Rosh Hashanah does not apply to a vow you know about. So you can't say, I'm going to make a vow, and then Erev Rosh Hashanah, I'll just have it released, mm-hmm. and I don't have to keep my word. Not only that, I heard Roberkowitz say that, generally speaking, it's forbidden for a person to make a vow. Your word should be your bond, and you don't make vows. We don't make vows. So what's the difference in the word in Hebrew? So one is, uh, that's a good question. One is, is that you said it. Mm-hmm. If anything, it would be Ledaber. God speaks. Uh-huh. And his will is reality. It's an emulation of God. You speak, and, and what you've said, that's your real, that is reality. A person should know that when you've said it, that, that's as real, mm-hmm. even if they have mm-hmm. to wait until it happens, but they don't have any question that it's going to happen. That, that's the deeper secret of waiting for Mashiach, mm-hmm. is achieving, striving to, to, not achieve, striving to get closer to the state of our forefathers, for whom God's word, I will take your children into the land of Egypt and they will be slaves for 400 years and I will raise them out with great wealth and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey, that that, that, that is reality. Therefore, there's no, I, it might take time, right? I, I perfectly know that Mashiach is coming. Why? Because God said so. God's word is reality. You can see it on the chart. But you may not see <laughs> God's it. God's word is reality. Yeah. You but don't you, you, may not you don't see, see it because you're down here and you and you can't see him. Fine, you're in the dark. So you're standing in the dark. If you weren't in the dark, you would see that possibly right in front of us, just a few steps away, possibly farther down the road, there's somebody coming. But I don't doubt he's coming. God said he's sending him. It just takes time. And it's difficult to hold on. Do you remember? I'm going to refer again to, we, even, we referred to this going into Purim as well. Rabbi Goldberg brought a Malbim on two Thursday mornings ago. He quoted the Malbim on a Pasuk in, I think, Ishaya, the one about Chizku Yadaim Rafos, strengthening weakened hands. Mm-hmm. And the Malbim said there's three reasons people have yeyush, they have despair. One of them is the kind of despair where their hands are weak, meaning they feel like this is too hard for me, so they don't even try. The second aspect of despair is, I do try, but now I got tired. I'm worn out. I've been trying, right? And, and I'm worn out, so now I give up. And the third aspect that causes despair is, okay, you told me to do it, I'll do it. And I have the energy, and I'm doing it, and I'm doing it a long time, and I can keep this up indefinitely, 
but it sure looks like it's indefinite. It looks like it's never coming to an end. It looks like God's word is not happening. If I've waited this long, you know, this is a very, very long galus. Mm. You know, you thought 400 years was long and you couldn't make it 400 whole years? This is a really, really long galus. Okay? This can also lead a person to despair. The solution of that has to do with how we relate to the word of God and his promises to us. And an emulation for that is when we say something, that's reality. <laughs> that our kids know. If you say something to them, it's true. You wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. Say, I don't know. And say, whatever, right? Because we're not God. We're not infallible. Yeah, so that, that happens to be a big theme in Parshios leading into Yitzhiya Smachayim, Shmos, Bo. You see Rashi brings this up in several places um, in these conversations with Moshe. I didn't have to tell the Avos, Shmi Hashem lo nodati lahem. I didn't have to tell the Avos, I am Hashem, who was, is, always will be, because they, they knew my word was reality. Then it didn't, it didn't occur to them to question it or to wonder or to doubt. And it was only after all the enslavement and the fatigue, the right? they were so tired from all of this, that started to creep in this kind of doubt, like, are we ever getting out of here? Or at least to stop thinking about getting out of there. Asurim. That's a, that's a whole. That's a whole topic. No, but it's a whole long view. So it's not a personal thing. It's you have to know that. It can you're also be a personal view. So when when they fought with Amalek, in the battle with Amalek, it's written in Parshas Bishalach after mm -hmm. the splitting of the Red Sea. So the first battle with Amalek, um, Yehoshua fought and Moshe stood and his hands were up. In my opinion, the description of the Battle of Amalek corresponds to that Malbim's description of despair. Mm -hmm. If you were tired, and fatigued, which is from long time, mm -hmm. you didn't see, you didn't have the awe of God that, that his word was. Well, I, I think it corresponds exactly. And also the results of how he held his hands up, I think, is the cure for it. Um, but at the end of that battle, Hashem says to Moshe, Write all these words down, Vesimba Azne Yoshua, and put them into the ear of Yoshua. Kimacho Emcha Ezecher Amalek Mitachas Hashemayim, that I shall very surely wipe out the name of Amalek from under the heavens. It's in the future tense, right? Hashem tells Moshe, put this in the ear of Yoshua. Why do you have to put that in the ear, ear of Yoshua? Because Yehoshua has a specific, this is the Orachayim, what I'm telling you now. Yoshua is the one who led the battle down on the ground. Moshe's up, up on the mountain. He has the overview. He's got the big picture. Yoshua was down on the ground. He's got the individual picture. And what he saw was they won the battle, but they didn't win the war. They weakened Amalek, but they didn't wipe out Amalek. And how can you understand that? Amalek's so wicked. Hashem is choosing these people. Amalek is, is wicked against God, not only the Jews, right? He denies God completely. Why didn't Hashem wipe them out? So Hashem tells Moshe, speak right into his ear. He, he needs to hear this personally. In a future time, I shall surely wipe out the name of Amalek from under the heavens. And now Yahshua, will, his heart will be at ease. Will it take a few thousand years? Yes. But Yahshua will be calm. As God said, he's going to do it. It could be individual. It could be for individual redemption as well. And the words of the Torah are talking to each one of us anyway. But you don't we, see it in your own mind. You don't you could. see it because you it, could. I mean, everybody... You could. you could. That would really be going into a different topic. 
could be somewhere along the way when we're talking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but I'm not sure we have so many, enough time to, okay. to cover that topic. You have that issue. You have that issue with the B'nai Ephraim. If you want to write to me, because I won't remember to send it out, I, it happens to be one of the few Shabbos Shurim I typed up on the B'nai Ephraim and how they left Egypt early. It was hard to wait. Hmm. Yeah, they left Egypt 30 years early, and they were the first, first Holocaust. But there's also, if you take a very, very big picture, a God's eye picture, there's a very happy ending. So it's also very interesting, right? What we see from where we stand is so limited. It's so, so limited. So this avoda, which is why I'm taking a little time with it, even though it's really not a topic, but it's so important for us, and it, it's great for going into Mitzrayim topics, the avoda of trusting in Mashiach. You know, one of the first questions we're asked when we get to heaven, Hatsipisa li Yeshua, did you anticipate salvation? Wow. Why is that so important? It's the same secret as, did you prepare for Shabbos? How do you prepare for Shabbos? When you prepare for Shabbos, ah, let's, go. let's go on a little diversion. Matir is also from the word Latour, to take a tour. Go, <laughs> go see how it looks, okay? How do you prepare for Shabbos? The reason that on Sunday you prepare for Shabbos, and on Monday you prepare, right? One day you polish the silver, and another day you make your shopping list, and another day you invite your guests, and another day you do the shopping, and another day you bake, and another day you cook. Why do you do all those things all those days? Because you know Shabbos is coming. It doesn't matter that you don't see it right there around the corner. You know it's coming. Now, there's another aspect, which is looking forward to it. When you're excited that somebody's coming, you also are like preparing up beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. Preparing for Shabbos. Well, Shabbos is a me'ain olam haba. Mm -hmm. So, Cook, you prepare for Shabbos on Erev Shabbos. You'll have what to eat on Shabbos. You prepare in this world because there's a next world, right? That's a little bit what we talked about going into Purim, that the value, the value of our actions in this world stems from the fact that there is a next world. Our actions have deep value, but the reason they have deep value is because there's a spiritual reality. The physical has meaning because there's a spiritual reality. Okay, so when we're waiting for Mashiach, it's like we're waiting for Shabbos, and this is why the exiles from Spain and Portugal in the time of the Inquisition, who ended up in Tzfas, many of them, and I don't know, many of them ended up in Tzfas, but Tzfas was populated by a lot of people who had gotten out of Spain and Portugal. It wasn't such a big city. Anyway, okay, they came up with this idea called Kabbalah Shabbos, greeting Shabbos, meaning even before Shabbos has technically started, you're going out to meet it and welcome it in and hasten it. It's a way of showing that I'm waiting for Yeshua. Mm -hmm. Waiting for Shabbos, the same thing. It's just like Shabbos is a main olam hava, so waiting for Shabbos and planning for Shabbos and anticipating Shabbos is a main, is a little fraction of waiting and anticipating for an olam hava whether in the spiritual world or in this world, Olam Haba, of Mashiach coming, right? That's why it's joyous, and that's why if you look at the text of Kabbalah Shabbos, it says very little about Shabbos, and says an awful lot about Olam Haba and redemption. Because that's what they meant by it. That was the point. The point wasn't Davka Shabbos. It was Shabbos for what it represents. These were people who had been through everything. It was terrible. But the showing Hashem, we're waiting for you. We trust in your salvation. We really, it is true. There are people, Rabbi Orlowick says, 
that there's only one time he ever made a promise to his kid. He doesn't use the word promise. His kids know. He says that he means it. He won't lie to them. One of his kids came really in hysterics because one of the other kids had told them that he was adopted. And <laughs> whatever, I mean, <laughs> you know, you could go the intellectual route and try and convince them that also if you're adopted, that's also a very close relationship. But, you know, this kid had the need and didn't happen to be adopted. He said, I promise you, you're not adopted. But that was it. Kid was fine. Why? Because his father doesn't promise things. And he always does what he says. And he always tells the truth as he knows it. If his father promises, he doesn't need any other argument. Okay? So you hold that story and you think of that, you know, whoever you know in your mind that you could trust on that way or that you wish you could trust on that way. And now remember that God's word is reality. The world was created with 10 statements. When I say God's word is reality, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> that's a literal statement. God's word is reality. And the Torah is full of promise that he will bring us into the land and he will relieve us from all the enemies around us. And he will send us a leader and a king to, bring, to restore the glory and to give us our security and to represent God's malchus in the world. And we will have a base on mikdash. This is all God's word. It is just as real. You know, the promises, the promises and the brachos to the future and the nevuos are just as real as the creation of the world in Bereshis. It's all God's word. But it's, it sometimes takes a really big picture. It's a really big picture to be able, and, and by the way, as you work up on this chart, this does, I don't have a column for it, as you work from bottom to top, you have a higher and higher level view. If you're looking at things in terms of your physical, right, uh, you can't have a higher level view. Huh. You have this principle also for educators. You know, when you're a teacher, they always give you, I forget, it's so many years ago since I was an elementary school teacher, but they give you this, like, pyramid, and at the bottom level of the pyramid is physical safety. <laughs> like, you have to be able to breathe. You have to have food to eat. You have to have water to drink, and ideally some kind of shelter, right? I mean, if you don't have those things, there's nothing to talk about moving up to higher levels of deeper meaning. Like, it's not true that there's nothing to talk about. Because sometimes people also don't have those things and can still find meaning. But essentially, you know, like certainly our expectations of other people. It's a very immediate view of things. You move from there to the level of nefesh, of regesh, of emotion, of life. When you feel things, it's right now. It feels like it will always be that way, and it's right now. That's the nature of feelings. The other nature of feelings is that they come and go. <laughs> no matter how inspired you are or no matter how deeply depressed you are, it comes and goes. It's waves, right? Miriam Adahan. Emotion is like a wave, <laughs> right? Like, but, but in whatever moment it is you are, it's difficult to conceive that you will ever feel any other way. And you move from there to the seichot, to the intellect, which is being able to say, you know, I feel like this now, but I know it will not always be so. I know there is a bigger picture. I know God that promised me something. And at the highest level, at the level of neshama, that's a level of seeing things from God's perspective. It's a level of nevuah, a level of Torah. That's really the divine level view. Okay, so when it says Esther, right? Esther Vatilbash Esther Malchus, and she came into this land, she became a Nevia also. Mm -hmm. She stands before God in prayer and she achieves the level of a Nevia. How we got here, I don't know. All right. God frees the imprisoned, but it's all good. It's all good places to go, right? Yeah. God frees the imprisoned. The simple meaning of this bracha is that when we are sleeping, we are imprisoned. 
the Talmud says, when a person straightens himself in bed and then sits up, he should say the bracha, Baruch Hashem, When we're sleeping, we're imprisoned. We're imprisoned by our body. Now, it happens to be an interesting thing that when you are asleep, and in particular, when you're in REM sleep, meaning a dream state, your body has a natural paralysis. And it's supposed to be that way. When that doesn't work right, people sleepwalk, they thrash around, they fall out of bed, right? Because what they're thinking about, they're also acting on. So the normal, natural, healthy thing is that when you are sleeping and when you are dreaming, your brain paralyzes your body so that you cannot move. And this, in this way, you're safe. You're having your dreams, but you're not enacting them. There are people for whom, you know, we mentioned that that doesn't work so well, and then they're up and about, but they're really deeply asleep. There are also people where that, <laughs> that feature <laughs> doesn't turn off at the right timing. So they wake up. This, this can actually happen to anybody once or whatever in their life. It can happen here and there. Some people have it very frequently, especially people with narcolepsy, where they wake up and they can't move. And it's very terrifying. And it's accompanied by a feeling of terror, even for someone who has had it happen before and knows that it's OK. It just seems to be accompanied by it, which is most unfortunate. But it certainly seems understandable. This person's perfectly awake, and they can't move at all. And after a minute or two, it wears off, and then they're back to normal again. Because it's just that was supposed to end already with the dream state. Not right. So that's like a mistiming of it. So when a person wakes up in the morning and can stretch their body and can sit up in the bed, we say, thank you, Hashem, for releasing me from my bonds, releasing me from the imprisonment. I was held down. You know, just to quickly jump, we say that in the future, when we say Shir HaMalos on Shabbos, right? Shir HaMalos Beshuv Hashem Es Shivas Tzion, when God shall return the captives of Zion, what? Hayinu Kehomim, we will be as if we had been dreaming. In the same way that in a dream, what you feel is real. You really feel it. It's really scary or really happy or really, right? And then you wake up, and it dissipates almost immediately, and you realize that was not real. This world that we live in, this world of gullus, is a kind of a dream state. I don't mean that it's not real. It's just, it's real. Just, but when you're in a dream, it's also real in the dream, right? It's real, but it's very dark. And when we have more light and when we can see the whole picture, we'll realize all of that was like some kind of dream. It will just fade away in the light of day of how we see the world and understand the world and see God's view. You know, everything that we felt and it was so scary and it was so, it's because we couldn't see that it was Hashem's hand. This, this does lead into the topic we're going to eventually get to with Matir Asura, that sort of ultimately having... Ha knowing that we will have that kind of illumination, and to what extent can we shed a little bit of that illumination ourselves to help relieve our own suffering? So, so, go ahead. Um, so the parts that we are saying that th we're thankful for is the fact that our, um, our body is not in a paralysis state. That's right. The simple meaning is we were bound during our sleep. We were... You know, I gave you an interesting scientific fact, which is that right. you actually do become paralyzed right. sometimes in your sleep. But the Gemara just says, you know, you're, sleep, you're sleeping, you can't move, you can't function. You wake up, and now you're up and ready to go again. 
You can move, you can stretch. You went from being bound by sleep to being awake and movable. Right, because also is during sleep, like it's it's partial death, so we're actually That's right. connecting. That's right. So part of waking up is that ability to get up and move. Okay, because getting up and moving, we know there's there's halicha and there's amida, right? There's a state of standing still, amida. Right. Shabbos is associated with that. Olam Haba is associated with that. Yom Kippur is associated with that. Standing still. Malachim, right? You ever heard the idea mal- malachim have somehow one leg, like they don't walk? Oh. They stand, yeah, they right. like stand, they don't, right? Hmm. They're, they're not walkers, they're standers. That's an angelic state. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't get you anywhere. Uh-huh. Oh. It's a static state. It's a staying still. Mm. Whereas halicha, walking, man is called a holich. Man is a walker. Man's a goer. We progress. In this world, we can walk. We can progress. It's more work than standing still. Hmm. Standing still is a relief from all that work of needing to progress. But then you're there. That's where you are. Okay. In this world is our chance to progress. It's interesting that you're calling this, or you or whoever, call it the simple meaning. I think the simple meaning would be like for getting people out of jail, right? right. According to that, I mean, Mitzrayim is, right. is still, you're still taking it to a different example. I mean, you don't really, you don't really think, on, at least now, I will, mm-hmm. but I don't think on a day-to-day basis that that's the reason why I said the problem. Right. So if you had seen it based in the Gemara, meaning if the way that you had learned this for the very first time was from the Gemara, from the Shulchan Aruch, where it says when a person sits up and straightens himself, he says this bracha, could be you wouldn't have thought about Matarim, could be you would have. I think you're right. I think that when you hear the words Matira Surim, it is going to trigger other things, because that's what words in Torah do, right? The words represent the ideas, and when you see certain words, they correspond to certain ideas, so then you do see them. So we are going to go there with it. Okay. Okay. That's why I said it's a good jumping off point okay. for, for talking about Intias Matarim. Rav Schwab says that this bracha includes also gratitude for speech and hearing, which are also inhibited while we're sleeping or while we're dreaming. Okay? Our ability to talk and our ability to hear are reduced, and so that's included over here. I saw also the Maharal says that it also it refers to our birth, not only our rebirth into each day, but also the initial birth where the baby is really confined in the womb and then is let out. Huh. So there's sort of a, re- a little mini reenactment every day when we're born anew. All right, now the language of the bracha. We've mentioned before that the brachos, most of davening, but the brachos in particular, wherever possible, Chazal took them as phrases or paraphrases of psukim. Right? Chazal's goal was not to make up new words. It was to express the ideas of the Torah in our brachos. So this bracha is based on a set of two verses which uh, show up in Tehillim Kufman Bav. We actually say them, I think, also in, uh, in Pesukei de Zimra. Ose mishpat la'ashukim. Hashem does justice for those who are exploited. Nosein lechem lira'evim. God gives bread to those who are hungry. Hashem matir asurim. Hashem releases... That's the bracha, right? Hashem releases the imprisoned. Hashem pokeach ivrim. Hashem opens the eyes of the blind. We've had that bracha. Hashem zokev kifufim. Hashem straightens the bent. We will get to that bracha, Mirz Hashem. Hashem ohev tzadikim. Hashem loves the righteous. 
This is a set. All right. So this is this is, has to be our starting point. If we want to understand what Chazal were indicating to us with this bracha, we have to look at the source of the words of the bracha. So this will be our starting point. Radak says, in every generation, Hashem rescues Jews from their captors and is destined to release them completely from the bonds of exile in the future. In other words, we look to the past and we look to Mitzrayim, right? And we understand that from this, we can also trust in God to, to redeem us in the future. Rav Hirsch says, and this really will encapsulate everything we're going to learn, this parak of Tehillim, of which this is a, an excerpt, is specific to the experience of the individual Jew, as in contrast with the one before it, the previous parak of Tehillim, is speaking to the experience of the Jews as a nation. This parak, this one, where these words come from, are talking about the experience of the Jew as an individual experiencing Hashem's loving care in his own life and proclaiming that that is so. Proclaiming hashgacha pratis, God's direct and individual supervision and control of his life. All right. All right. So that's the whole, this series you're saying is for the individual. This series, it's actually the whole parak, Kuf Mem Vav, chapter 146 of Tehillim, of which this is two verses, which is the source of this blessing. All right. Now, what I just told you from Rav Hirsch sounds generalized. So what do I do with that? What do I do with that? Okay, so it's talking about uh, individuals. Hashem does chesed for the individual, and we're supposed to recognize that in our own lives and proclaim Hashem has done hashkacha pratis for me. Hashem is there for me. But we can break this down into a lot of little pieces that will give us a greater insight. Piece one and piece two. Piece one is the elephant in the room, the elephant in the pasuk. Ose mishpat la'ashukim. Hashem does justice for those who are oppressed or exploited. Hashem gives bread to the hungry. Hashem releases the imprisoned. Hashem opens the eyes of the blind, and Hashem straightens the bent. Hashem loves tzaddikim. Okay. This is all chesed. But who made me be exploited in the first place that I needed justice? Who made me hungry that I needed bread? Who put me in captivity that I needed to be released? Who made me blind that I need to see? Who made me bent that I need to be straightened? Nobody leave. <laughs> all right, this is a problem. You probably have thought of this question before, just maybe not about this pasuk. Yeah? When you hear someone say, look, Baruch Hashem, you know, and you're thinking, but, <laughs> but, 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 look what you had to go through. You could ask this question about Mitzrayim. Thank you, Hashem, for taking us out of Mitzrayim, for sending ten plagues, for wiping out the Mitzrayim. Okay, and who put us there? This is a very important question to talk about before Pesach. We, I mean, you're going to read the whole Haggadah, you know. We kind of did it to ourselves. Maybe. Okay, this is, this is like, <laughs> a 
I hope you come back next week. That's all I can is say. Because like we're not going to finish it all in one. No, problem? no, no, no. It's not. It's just we have to be not afraid to ask the questions. You can't be afraid to ask the questions. Part of trusting that God's word is truth is not being afraid to ask. Why? Because there's an answer. Who says I have it? Maybe I could just leave you like this. That would be really cruel. Saying, yeah, actually, I don't know. <laughs> I have no approach to this at all. So go off and have a good life, you know, like being resentful about all your problems. But I would, I would like to give you something more than that that I think is helpful, okay? Uh, but even before that is, is, the, is the lesson that we're not afraid to ask. We can't be afraid to ask because if something isn't sitting right, it means I'm not understanding the whole picture. So if I ask, maybe I'll find something out that helps me understand more of the picture. But if I'm afraid to ask, because it sounds challenging, so I'll never find out. I'll just sit there always wondering, wondering was there an answer. Yeah. So when you ask the questions, you tend to find answers. And when you don't find answers, sometimes you wait. And you just hold it. And you say, that's OK. I know there is an answer. I know it's dark. I know it's gullus. There's an answer. And someday, all of a sudden, you find an answer. It happened to me this morning. I'm worried a lot about a certain word in the Megillah of over and over again. What is going on here? We made progress this year. You know, it might take 10 years. You see some progress. Okay, furthermore, we're not gonna, I'm not going to answer it yet. I'm leaving that question there. But this is, this is the question you got to answer. So the question really is, why do we need chesed? Okay, that's one part. We talked about that a bit with Pokeh Ivrim, right? We talked about Rav Hirsch saying, not, not that we need it, but saying, you know, or sorry, with Malbi Sharumi, you know, if we didn't have needs, would we have any opening for chesed? He does kind of like throw that out there, remember? It's going to take it to a little different aspect. The, what the question is that I've kind of laid out here, and we're not going to get to an answer today, but we'll start building towards the answer today, and then hopefully, hopefully at least by the end of next session, we'll, we'll have some kind of beginning of an approach so that you're not like walking around, you know. Okay. The question is, how am I supposed to appreciate all the good Hashem does for me if realistically I also see how much trouble I have and I believe that everything comes from Hashem? What does that mean? Hashem's hashkacha pratis is chesed. Right? That a person sees Hashem's loving care, and that's Hashkacha Pratis. But Hashkacha Pratis has to include everything. Hashem's individual attention to running my life has to include everything. I can't pick and choose and say, well, Hashem provides the good. And then all that stuff that was hard for me, I don't know, that's like somebody else's fault. Even people's fault, I can't really totally just point that way. Because they have their own free choice, but from the point of view of their impact on me, that's God putting that on me. I can't ignore that. Otherwise, I'm giving power to other things and people other than Hashem. That's not correct. There's only one God. And he is totally in control of my life. Okay? So how do I grapple with this? How do I face the fact? How do I face the fact in a way that doesn't leave me angry, but that leaves me appreciating Hashem's loving care? Rav Hirsch said this parak is specific to the individual Jew experiencing Hashem's loving care in his own life and proclaiming this as Hashkacha Pratis. Well, now that I've noticed all the caring parts of this psukim, these psukim, every single aspect of the loving care 
is a salvation from a problem. So how, how am I going to tackle this? I think there's more than one way. There's definitely more than one approach. We'll have different ways of thinking, but, but we're going to kind of have a solid one. We're going to have a good one. All right. So in order to start approaching the answer, we're going to hear, I didn't bring the whole Gemara. The Gemara in Yuma and the Medrash in Bracious Rabbah say, you know who these psukim are talking about? Rav Hirsch told us one thing. Radak told us one thing, right? They said this is talking about each and every individual Jew. The Gemara says, these, these are referring to someone in particular. Someone in particular. Now, if you look at the way these verses are structured, each, the, each verse has a sort of a cap. You know, whenever you have three, so the third is like a, a kind of an emphatic culmination. Hashem frees the imprisoned. Huh, who could that be? Hashem pokeach ivrim. Hashem zokev kifufim. Hashem ohev tzadikim. The tzadik. Who could that be? Oh, I know someone who's called tzadik who was a prisoner. That's Yosef. Yosef. Joseph. Yosef, he was in jail. There's the first example of someone in jail. Yosef was in jail. And Hashem freed him. And Yosef is called Yosef HaTzadik. He's not called Yosef Rabbeinu. He's not called Yosef Avinu. He's Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef the righteous one. So what does this have to do with Yosef? I mean, other than he was in jail and got out. How, how do I, how, what am I going to get from that Hashem does justice for the exploited and gives food to the hungry and opens the eyes of the blind and straightens the bent, and Hashem loves Sadiqim. Like, how is that going to help me understand about Yosef? Or how is Yosef going to help me understand about this topic? All right. All right, so to talk about this, we're going to really, I, I don't, there's a limit to how far we can go. I'm going to give you just the first beginning lines taking for granted that you know the story of Joseph, at least in its broad outlines. Mm -hmm. Okay, you may understand a little differently when we're done, but basically, I'm not going to read like all about Yosef. Yosef was brought down to Egypt. His brother sold him, and he was taken by caravan down to Egypt. And the Yalkut, which is a collection of Midrashim in order of the verses they attach to in the Torah, the Yalkut says, do you know what Pasuk elsewhere in Torah refers to Yosef going down to Mitzrayim? Siv, the Pasuk says in Hosea, this is a prophecy from the prophet Hosea, Hosea, Bechavli Adam with the ropes or cords of mankind, I will pull them. With bonds of love, I shall be for them like one who raises up a yoke that has been burdening them and I provide food for him. What does it have to do with Yosef? The Medrash does this. 
It assumes. It's Torsha Balpet. You have a Rebbe. It's going to teach you. <laughs> right? Like, Ledger says, this is Yosef. That Hashem says, I shall draw them with cords of man, with bonds or ropes of love. I will be the one who lifts the burden off of their cheeks or their jaws, and I shall give them food. It does sound a lot like that Pesach, doesn't it? Yeah. Meaning, the Medrash didn't bring this Pesach about Yosef over here. It said it somewhere else. But yeah, you see how this links together. God gives justice to the oppressed or exploited. That kind of sounds like lifting, right? Maybe the... And giving food to the hungry. I will give them food. Hashem matir asurim. Set them free. Okay. And not only that, but clearly the cords here, the bonds, the ropes that are tying them, are ropes of love. So already we're starting to see by like laying out these different cards that all connect, or maybe they're puzzle pieces, right? And we lay them out one by one, and we start to see that they all are forming a picture that is telling us you have to look at the source of the problem, not only at the redemption. Right? So we ask this question, and already we have a little bit of an answer here, which is, yeah, no, no, it's good. Yes, even in facing the fact that there was the suffering, that there was the imprisonment, the exploitation, the blindness, that's also part of the love. That's, that's a different way of thinking about it. I mean, don't be afraid to say not only who saved me, but who put me into this. Somehow this is all a unified picture of Hashem's Hashgacha Pratis. We don't have a way of dealing with that idea yet. Only the fact that this is the picture that the Medrash and the Gemara are painting for us. Just very broad outlines of it. No details, and so far, no idea how to get there. It's very nice to say it, but how do you get there? You know, I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday, with a Rav, um, and he said, for us, this is an intellectual or academic exercise, but for her, she's living through the hell. You understand? It's, it's one thing I'm talking about this, but you know, if you're living through being exploited or hungry, or bound, or belonging, or bent. Like, that's a living experience. It's not enough to just say, oh, it's all love. Like, great. Thank you. Thank you for your sympathy, and don't come visit again. <laughs> I don't need this kind of sympathy. Right? When you're sitting shiva, and somebody comes and says, it's all, it's all really for the good. I'm sure they're happier now. And you're like, yeah, whatever, thanks. Appreciate that. That's not, that's not my living moment. Like, it's... Shiva. I'm it sure. Wasn't after the show, afterwards, it's like they're in a better place. Don't you see? I'm like, thank you, <laughs> thank you. I will find comfort in that thought when I'm ready to find comfort in that thought. And how about me? I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah? he may be in a better place, but what about me? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the Medrash says, "Bechavle, adam emshachem." With ropes of man, I pull them. This is Yosef. As the verse says, Vayimshachu Vayaluas Yosef bin Habor. They pulled and tugged and raised Yosef out of the pit. It's the same word. God says with 
with ropes of men, I will pull them. That's Yosef. He was pulled out with the ropes from the pit. Bavosos um, Ava, with bonds of love. That's, and Israel loved Yosef. Jacob loved Joseph. Okay. So idea number one that for a week we're going to just have to kind of hold in our minds is Yosef's imprisonment didn't start when Mr. Potiphar threw him in jail. Yosef's imprisonment began when his brothers kidnapped him and threw him in a pit. That's when he stopped being free. There's a bigger picture here than just jail. And... Yeah, but he wasn't imprisoned. Okay. He's, he's really imprisoned. Okay. The Matir Asurim, right. his, his imprisonment, his bondage, his captivity began when he was thrown into the pit. And that's bonds of love. Hashem provided for him in a loving manner. In the imprisonment itself. Okay? And we know that there's all these things that Rashi says... Right, uh, they threw him into the pit, and there were no, there were scorpions, but nothing bit him. And then when they sold him to the Midianites, and it was sweet smelling instead of kerosene that they were transporting, that somehow there's an undercurrent of love in this, right? Which we might not have even seen if we didn't realize that this began when he was thrown into the pit, and this is a bigger process. Now, if that's the beginning of the process, what's the end? And we're going to conclude with this for now for this section. The end of the process, Yosef himself says, and now, he says to his brothers, do not be frustrated or sad. Don't let it make, you, make it angry in your eyes. That you sold me here. But rather as sustenance, in order to provide food, God sent me here before you. He gives food to the hungry. God sent me here for that. Somehow that's important. But he testifies, don't be upset. He when says, I'm he not upset. This? He says this when he finally has revealed himself to the brothers. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the end of, the of, of this yes. process for him. Mm -hmm. After that, he still goes on with his job. He's still the prime minister mm -hmm. of the country, right? But we don't hear about it. He has a certain process of imprisonment that begins with being thrown in the pit and ends with revealing himself to his brothers mm -hmm. where he says, don't let it make you unhappy. God sent me here for a purpose. He sent me here yeah. to provide for us. Hmm. He's saying he's not unhappy, right? right? Don't let this bother you. So let's take at least the message from Yosef to carry us for a week. It's just trusting him because we have no data yet. Mm -hmm. But he, as the one who did live through it and did experience it all, says, don't let this make you upset. This is bonds of love. This is, this is good. Okay, so next week in Mirza Hashem, we'll explore through looking more deeply at the story of Yosef in detail, what happened to Yosef, how it ties back to these psukim, and starting to, to reveal out from them, then what can we take away from that? How did he get to feel the way he did? As much as we can see from, from the Mepharshim, right? We don't understand him. But what lessons? Let's say not this way. Not how did he get that way. What does he teach us? about how we would be able to approach and fulfill what the Mephoshim seemed to be assuming we could do with this bracha. Just to say, Hashem re releases us from being bound where both sides of that picture are something we're grateful for.
Where's that? It, it's a Gemara. It's in Rashid. What he says oh, to them? This, no. This pasuk? Yeah. This is Tehillim. This is two pasukim from Tehillim. Uh -huh. It's Tehillim Kuf Mem Vav, 146. It's also in Pesukei de Zimra. Okay. Um, sometimes it's so brilliant. It gives you the chills, you know? Like how some things just... It's so perfect. Yeah. 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 No, it's sometimes a little bit scary. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's scary in the sense of awe. I mean, we can, we, how much opportunity do we have for real awe? But when piece by piece you start to look and you see that every single thing in Torah fits in exactly, and we start to, you know, there's we can't see the hand that's so much bigger than us, but it's but we st we get an idea that it's there. One forty-six. That's okay. One forty-six. I just saw a study that said that when people count on their fingers, they do better in other aspects of math as well. Even though we consider, yeah, we consider that like a big lack, but the truth is creating that. It's interesting. Right. I think we try and get our kids not to do it because we're afraid they'll depend on it and they won't be able to do the math on their own. I just do Hebrew. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I, I don't know how to count on my fingers for Hebrew. <laughs> Maybe that's a good trick we should all learn. All right. Have a good week. Thank you, oh, man, you too. We still have some work to get out of Ms. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and that's this good. This is so interesting for the Seder, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise, really, especially once I pointed out the question, <laughs> how, can, how can we with a whole heart sing the Haggadah? Right? Uh, and we want to. I'm assuming we want to. Yeah. You know, um,